a hand, let them know how thankful you are for them this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Zechariah chapter number 6. Zechariah chapter number 6, and uh, we're going to continue on in our series this morning, uh, not by might and not by power. We've been in this series in Zechariah for a while as we've looked at his prophecy to the people. And uh, specifically, what we've seen over the last several weeks is that through different visions, God has told Zechariah about the great work that he is going to do amongst his people. We know uh, through that series that God is bringing his people back from their exile in Babylon, and he is leading them to a specific mission. And that mission is that they would rebuild the temple that had been destroyed some 70 years before. But he's also doing more than that in their midst. He's doing something greater than that. He's not only rebuilding the temple, but he's rebuilding his people. Remember that in chapter number one, he promised the people through a vision that he would protect them. As we saw the vision of a man walking amongst the myrtle trees, there was the promise of God's presence that would protect them from the foreign invaders in the future. Then we came to chapter number two and we saw another vision. This time it was a vision of a man walking with a measuring line. And there it was the promise that God would prosper his people, that he would Give them a kingdom that could not be counted, much like he told Abraham that if he would go and number the descendants be, descendants be. Then we went from there to chapter number three, and he promised there that he was going to purify his people. That as he saw the vision, as we saw the vision of the high priest ministering on behalf of the people before the Lord, that God was promising them that he too would clothe them with new robes, robes of righteousness, and take away their garments of unrighteousness so that they may stand in the presence of their God. Then in chapter number four, God promised that he would empower his people for the work that was in front of them. As he gives them the vision of the lampstand that has got these olive trees that are pouring into it so that they don't have to constantly go in and refuel, but that God, through his power of his presence and his spirit, the proclamation of his word, that he would empower the people for the work that he was doing in them. And then last week in chapter number five, we saw the promise to purge the people from their sin with that flying scroll and the basket of wickedness that was taken out from their midst. So in all of those, what God is doing is he's describing to the prophet this great work that he is doing in their midst, not only of rebuilding a temple, but what he's doing in the midst of the people of faith, in the community itself. You can call it revival, you can call it renewal, you can put on on it whatever term you want to, but it's God's description of something great that he's going to do in the community of faith. And it's really one of the things I think that makes Zechariah's prophecy unique. It's one of the reasons why I'm a little surprised as I began this series noting that I had never even heard a series of messages out of Zechariah. I'm a little surprised that this prophecy is not proclaimed more often because in it we find a source of great encouragement because the other prophets, they often speak plain messages about what God is doing in that time, the physical work, whether it be rebuilding walls or rebuilding the temple. Zechariah separates himself because he shows God's concern not just for the physical, but for the spiritual as well. God didn't just want to rebuild his city in the prophecy of Zechariah. He wanted to rebuild his people into something that they were not. And I think that makes it a great message for today. Oftentimes in our society, we are caught up in the physical, wanting to rebuild the world around us. 
But Zechariah's prophecy reminds us that God not only cares about who sits in the White House or the world around us, but God also cares about the hearts and the souls of his beloved people, his chosen people, his bride. In that message throughout the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus has played a central role. Everything from in chapter 1, his presence as the man who was the messenger walking amongst the myrtle trees, to the foreshadowing of the gospel in the chapters that came, as God the Father would send forth his son and promise to us in Zechariah that his son would come and die our death on the cross of Calvary, that we might be given those robes of righteousness. Every part of the message of Zechariah brings us back, brings us face to face with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's another thing that I think separates Zechariah. It's such a great message for today because, quite frankly, it's a really easy message to preach from the Old Testament because over and over again, we are brought face to face with our Savior, Jesus Christ. God continues to this day, beloved, to do a great work in the world. You know, I'm convinced that God is doing a great work in our world today. He's doing a great work not only in the world that is around us that we see, but he's doing a great work in his people, in his bride, in his churches, in his local congregations, amongst his people. And that work cannot be separated today from the work that he promised in Zechariah, the work that was coming in Jesus Christ's entrance into the world and his death on the cross on our behalf. Now this morning we're going to come to chapter number 6. And in some ways, chapter number 6 really makes a hard breaking point in the prophet's message. If you've been reading ahead along the way, uh, you might have noticed this already. But the prophet's message in Zechariah is actually 14 chapters long, but it's two sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 6, and they are visions, or what I described early on in this series as apocryphal, meaning they are illustrations, they are artworks, if you will. They are things that the prophet sees that carries with it hidden or interpretive meanings that we have to try to dig deep to figure out. Their illustrations are like looking at a piece of art that you have to find meaning in the midst of the symbolism. And that makes them at times harder to understand. It's why I encouraged you to get a good study Bible to study along with us. But in this case, they haven't been that difficult to understand because the prophet says to the messenger continually, I don't understand these things. Explain them to me. And then the messenger responds back with his explanation. So we've been aided along the way. But the first six chapters are these illustrations. They are these visions. But after chapter number six, the next eight chapters are instruction. They are clear teachings about God wants, what God wants to relay to his people. Do this, don't do this, do this, and don't do this. Chapter 6 makes that hard-breaking point. It's the last of the visions, the eighth and final vision of the prophet, that the prophet receives from the Lord that we're left trying to interpret and figure out. By way of remembrance, again, remember chapter 1 was a promise to protect God's people. And chapter 2 was a promise to prosper God's people. Chapter 3 was a promise to purify God's people. Chapter 4 was a promise to empower God's people. Chapter 5 was a promise to purge God people, God's people from their sin. And now this morning in this eighth and final vision in chapter 6, it is God's promise to perfect as God points the prophet to the end of all things, to things that he would not understand in that time, 
and things that we might not fully understand even in this day. And I think there's great hope in, in that for us in each of those chapters, but especially in chapter number six. I think there's great hope for us this morning to see how God's plan to perfect all things is going to come to fruition. And so with that, join me in studying the, the vision of chapter number six. The first thing that you'll notice is that the prophet sees a vision which is described for us in verse number one where he says that he saw four chariots coming out between two mountains. It's not terribly difficult to understand what that symbolism is. Chariots in his day were transportations of war. The people would have conjured up in their minds the same thoughts that we might uh, uh, conjure up today as we look out and see A-10s flying over Sedalia or B-2 bombers or fighter jets uh, circling around. In fact, this week I was hanging out with somebody and they looked up and some A-10s flew by and they said, it seems like there's been a lot more activity of late. It's the same type of illustration. It's the same type of symbolism that the prophet is seeing in this moment as he sees the chariots. They're the F-23s of the day, right? They are the, the transportations of war. That these chariots come between two mountains is perhaps the little bit perplexing part of the message, but it's still pretty simple. Have no fear. Hang with me. I would remind you of the people's history specifically as we go back to God's work in bringing the people out of Egypt. If you've been doing the read your Bible in a year plan, you, you know we've been in this section of scripture in the book of Exodus. When God brings the people out of Egypt, where does he bring them to in order that he may instruct them? And of course, the answer is that he brings them to a mountain. He brings them specifically to Mount Sinai where he would meet with Moses and with them. So some have suggested that the chariots coming out, these transportations of war coming out between two mountains signifies that they are coming from the presence of God, where God dwells, lifted up, high and lifted up, where he is noted for meeting and living with his people. Other commentaries, such as the Enduring Word, suggest that the two mountains are more than just symbolic, but they're actually in reference to two very specific mountains. Because remember, the people are in Jerusalem at this time. And in Jerusalem, there are two very specific and important mountains in their history. There are the Mount of Olives and the Mount Zion. Mount Zion is described as a hill in Jerusalem. It's located just outside the walls of the city, but it plays an important role in their history and in their future. And then there's the Mount of Olives. Obviously, it plays a very significant role in all of Scripture. For example, it's just to the east of Jerusalem, and it's the place where what uh, the Old Testament describes as the elite of Judah would make their living. Many wanted to be buried uh, there in the Mount of Olives because it was supposed to be a higher status. It's the place where King David fled in fear of his life when Absalom uh, was after him and trying to take his throne. It is the site where the glory of the Lord dwells in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 23 where we read, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is east of the city. It's where Jesus stood and wept over Jerusalem on the way to the cross. It's where Jesus did his teaching from Luke chapter 21 and John chapter 8, known as the Mount Olivet Discourse. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives that sits the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus uh, sweat drops of blood uh, before his cross and crucifixion. And it's also believed to be the mountain where Jesus ascended into heaven. And so it's an important mountain in the history of Scripture. Now, whether or not Zechariah was showing these two specific mountains, we don't really know because they are described in verse number one as being made of bronze. 
Some commentators have suggested that bronze is biblically representative of strength and judgment. In other words, they see the mountains as symbolic in saying that these mountains just stood for judgment on one end and strength on the other, and specifically God's strength and God's judgment. And thus it makes sense that the chariots, the transportations of war, would come out from amongst them. An interpretation I like better is what Dr. Albert Moeller from Southern Theological Seminary says. He suggests a more classical interpretation. He reminds his reader that the people would have associated the mountains of bronze with Solomon's temple, which they are rebuilding in that moment, which had been destroyed. He notes that Solomon's temple was constructed as a model of the heavens. It was supposed to picture God high and lifted up. And at the entrance of that temple stood two pillars uh, of bronze. I remember one of them's name was Boaz. I don't remember the other pillar's name, but, but they were made of bronze. And so perhaps, Dr. Moeller says, perhaps he's picturing in these mountains a symbolic vision of Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed, and now the people are rebuilding. And that fits well into the context of all that Zechariah has said. But whether or not you believe that the mountains are a picture of God's temple or whether they are symbolic of God's strength and judgment or whether you believe that they are the specific mount, the Mount Olivet and and the Mount, Mount Zion, whether or not you believe any of those things, all commentators are in agreement that they lead you to the same interpretation and that is that those mountains represent God's presence. They represent where God dwells, where he's living, where he's high and lifted up above his people. And so from that, the prophet describes what he sees as instruments of war coming out from the presence of God, being ridden out from the presence of God to do a mission, like A-10s being launched from a base or fighter jets being launched from a specific location of authority and sovereignty. That's the picture. That you have this, this presence of God, the sovereignty of God ruling and reigning over the nations, high and lifted up, exalted over the people. And from that exalted estate, these weapons of war, these transportations of war are being sent out. The prophet goes further in his vision and he tells us in verse number two that we have these horses that are leading the chariots and they're of four different colors. The first chariot has red horses, the second has black, the third white, and the fourth has dapple. And if, you, if that's the ESV uh, translation of the word, and if you don't know what dapple is, you join a long list of preachers who didn't know what it was either. But if you're an equestrian or a dog breeder, you know that dapple speaks of a specific gray color that is found in certain animals. Much has been made about the colors over the years and the interpretation of this vision, just as much was made about the colors in chapter number one. Remember when we saw the messenger riding or walking amongst the myrtle trees, we had horses there, and we said that the horses were pictures of God's economy, of how angels, emissaries, messengers were sent out. And in chapter one, I told you that it really didn't matter. The colors didn't really matter what they stood for. But that hasn't uh, left uh, scholars and biblical interpreters over the years to try to figure it out. For example, the commentator Luck said that uh, they were scriptural symbolism for red speaks of war, black of famine and death, white of victory, and grizzled or dapple or gray is of pestilence. Uh, It could be true. I have no idea. I, I have no way to even try to figure it out. But everyone is in agreement once again that the chariots of war represent that war and these agents of war, the color is insignificant, but rather what is significant is what these chariots are doing. They're coming from the presence of God, or you might say they're being sent out by God. And certainly in Scripture, famine, death, victory, pestilence are descriptors of war and judgment, so it could be. 
But just as I argued in chapter 1, I would say it's not the colors that are important. Don't get lost there, but rather stay with it. It's fun to speculate. The colors of the horses have little value to the vision. It's what they are doing, their function. And so what is it that they're doing? Verse number 5, the angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. That confirms, first of all, what the mountains represent. They represent the presence of the Lord, where he's at. But he also tells us in this moment what the horses and the chariots are doing. They are emissaries of war, and he says specifically that they are sent out from the one who controls all things. Then we go down to verse number 6, and we find out that their colors denote the direction of their work. He says that black is going to the north, and white is going to the west. Dapple is headed to the south, and that means that we could assume that the red horses or the red horses carrying chariots were probably going to the east. That they they then are described as spirits probably associates with another biblical illustration, and that is in the Old Testament, spirits and wind were closely identified. So you might say that these are the four winds of the earth, the four spirits of the earth. In verse 7, where we're told that they went out, they were, he, he writes, straining to go throughout the earth. So in other words, what the writer is doing is he's giving us a picture that God's presence is over here and he's sending out these four chariots uh, uh, horsed by uh, horses of different color. Their color denotes which direction they're going and that they are strained or they are, Brother Rick, running at full strength, running at breakneck speed to go to the ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west. What they're doing is discovered then in verse number eight. He writes, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Well, what was to the north in Zechariah's day? And the answer is Babylon. Babylon was the people who had defeated these folks, right? And so because of that, when God tells Zechariah that the horses and the chariots are going to the north and they're giving his spirit rest, what he's saying is that my emissaries of war are going out from my presence at breakneck speed. They're straining forward and they've gone to the, to the area that had conquered us, to the people who were the enemies of my people, and they are providing me with rest. In other words, what are they doing? They're conquering. They are going out and they are conquering the enemies of God. God was bringing judgment across his enemies. So taken together, the picture then that the prophet is receiving, the vision the prophet is receiving from the Lord, is that God has decided that it is now time to pursue justice in every corner of the earth. Like the wind sweeping across the land, God is sending out his emissaries to do business, to right the wrongs, to bring justice where injustice has ruled and reigned across the entire globe. And now we're getting a view into it. If Zechariah was receiving that vision today, God might have showed him F-23s flying overhead, headed out to conquer those who have persecuted the land. It was God's description of a fulfillment of all things. That's why I use the word perfect in the beginning. God is describing for the prophet a day when he will make right every wrong, when justice will conquer injustice, and he would reign supreme over all the earth and over all things. But he's not done yet. In verses 9 through 15, as a part of this vision, Zechariah then is shown something else. He's shown a crown. It's distinctly different than the first part of the vision. He instructs the prophet in verse number 9 to take gold and silver from these exiles. And he names some specific exiles, which gives us some historical content. 
And he tells them that they are to take that gold and that silver and they are to bring it to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And with that silver and gold, they are to make a crown, which according to verse number 11, should then be placed on the priest, the high priest, the name Joshua, which you may remember from a couple of chapters ago, it is to be placed after it has been fashioned upon his head. Now, as painful as it is this morning, beloved, and I hope you don't grow weary in these things, we have to stop for a moment and consider exactly what the prophet was just told. We have to understand exactly this instruction. It seems simple enough, right? Go, go get silver and gold, make a crown, take it to this silver and gold smith and have him make a crown, put it on the high priest's head. And yet, that's an interesting instruction. See, a few weeks ago, we were introduced to Joshua as the first high priest of those who would return from Babylon of the new temple. And in that introduction, I introduced you to what the high priest does. Do you remember what he does? Do you remember what the high priest does? Well, we said that he ministers on behalf of the people before the Lord, that he's responsible for the administration of the temple, though he has other priests who help him with that administration, like we might associate with associate pastors, worship pastors, children's pastors. He's got these other priests that help him with the administration of the temple. But he alone, as the high priest, is singularly responsible for ministering on behalf of the people before the Lord. And that reaches a climactic moment on their calendar in what was known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sacrifice on behalf of the people. And he would report back to them whether or not God had approved of their sacrifice. In other words, one time a year... The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people and come back and say, God has either forgiven your sin or God has rejected your sacrifice and your sin is still upon you. It's an important job. It was reserved for the most holy of men. And with it comes a lot of restrictions. The high priest had to be the most holy of all the people. He had to be because he alone was the one who would walk into the direct presence of God. Nobody else would have that responsibility. The role was reserved for a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses of the tribe of Levi. Well, now here in chapter number 6, God shows the prophet a vision where a crown is fashioned and that crown is being placed on the head of the high priest. And that is very problematic. Why is that a problem, you might ask? Well, the crown is symbolic of authority. It's not something that you give to a priest. It's something that you give to someone else. Who do you give a crown to? You give a crown to a king, right? To royalty. You crown kings. You don't crown priests. In God's economy, in the Old Testament specifically, in his system, the priesthood and the monarchy always had to be separated. Priests were to be from the tribe of Levi, with the high priest being a descendant of Aaron, while kings were the descendants of who? Well, they were descendants of King David, and they were of the tribe of what? Judah, right? It was two completely different lines. It's two completely different lineages. It's two completely different descendants in that moment. And so what God is showing to the prophet is a picture of something that he's got to be terribly unfamiliar with. Something that, in, quite frankly, probably should scare him. It's a pretty big deal. He's seeing the high priest crowned as both priest and king over God's people. Turn with me quickly to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Because I would suggest to you that such a vision must have terrified Zechariah. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we find a story of one of the great kings in Judah's history. His name was Uzziah. You may remember him not from 2 Chronicles chapter 26, but you may actually remember him from another book in the Old Testament known as Isaiah. Let me get there in a moment. We're told in verse number 2 of 2 Chronicles 26 that Isaiah had restored Judah to its great wealth and prestige. In verse number 4 of that chapter, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In verse number 5 of that chapter, we are told that he set himself to seek God in the fear of God. So in other words, Uzziah is a faithful dude, right? He's somebody who loves the Lord, wants to serve the Lord, wants to honor the Lord. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that not all of the kings wanted to do that. The result of that faithfulness, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us, was that God then gives Uzziah great victories. Specifically, he gives him great war victory. He gives him military victory over the enemies of Judah, and he expands their border. He's such a great king that when he appears on the scene in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah seems almost apoplectic at the death of Uzziah. It's like, oh my goodness, the greatest king in our nation's history has died. It's a scary moment for Isaiah to envision. What is God going to do now that his great king Uzziah has died? But if you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you find out that for all of the good that Uzziah did, he made a fundamental mistake in his life. If you pick up the story beginning in verse 16 and you read to the close of the chapter, you find that all of that success led Uzziah to a place where he was filled with pride. And because of his pride, he decided that he was going to do something that wasn't allowed for kings to do. And what was that? He was going to enter into the holy place of the temple and operate as a priest and he burned incense on the altar of the Lord. God was so angry that the king of the nation would enter into his holy place and do something that only the high priest was allowed to do, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that God struck Uzziah with leprosy. It's a story that's pivotal to what's taking place in Zechariah chapter 6. Because Zechariah has to know this history. He has to know that kings cannot be priests and priests cannot be kings. And so as he receives this vision of God sending one who would be both priest and king, Zechariah's got to be thinking to himself, this cannot be right. This has got to be made up. This has got to be wrong. This cannot be from the Lord. Because in God's kingdom, the priest and king are separate roles, separating, serving separate functions. And for the king to intrude into the role of the priest was actually anathema. It was accursed. It was damnable. But there was a longing amongst the people that one day perhaps these two might be blended together. And you say, why is that? Why have the people been taken into captivity in Babylon? Well, the answer is because of their sin. God's judgment upon them. If we go back and we look at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what we find is that over and over, kings played a fundamental role in the lives of Israel and Judah. And even though their responsibility was not to operate as priests, When kings sought the Lord, the people sought the Lord as well. And when they did not seek the Lord, they did not seek the the people did not seek the Lord either. And so the king, as much as he was not a priest, he plays this fundamental role in the history of Israel and Judah about leading them in faithfulness and in righteousness. And so in Zechariah's day and even before that day, 
The people had a longing in their heart that one day God would raise up a king who would be priestly in his nature, priestly in his faithfulness, because they thought that if God would raise up a king that was righteous like a priest, that perhaps the people would be restored and the people's iniquity would be far from them and the people would not be led into this road of unfaithfulness. Over and over again, beloved, I have said that there was a temptation among the people in Zechariah's day. They have returned But there's a question on their mind. How do we never fail God in such a way that he does this to us again? How do we keep the nation from going back into unfaithfulness? Because our history is that we will continue to go back into unfaithfulness over and over again. And the hope was God would raise up a king who was righteous. Now all of a sudden God is telling Zechariah that I'm going to not only raise up a king who is righteous. I'm going to make a king who is both king and priest. That was foreign to him. God had fixed a firm wall, a wall, and we might put it in American society, a wall of separation between the church and the state. The state was not to step into the role of the temple. It was too holy for them. And the people and 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 the temple was not to step into the role of the state, even though the people longed for such a leader. Interstage right, God promises Zechariah one who would be both priest and king over the people. And you might guess where this is going. But beloved, it's not the one whom he crowns. You see, Joshua is just used for symbolic purposes in this moment. And how do we know that? Because if you go to verse number 12, God says to Zechariah, tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah saw Joshua as a representation of the priesthood. But he saw the crown as a representation of the kingdom. But God says in this moment, Zechariah, do not be confused. Joshua is not to both be priest and king. There is another who will be priest and king, and his name is Branch. Branch, what a name. Have we heard that somewhere before? Have we heard that name even just a few months ago in our Christmas series? I suggest we have. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 1 from our Christmas series. There shall come forth a shoot from a stump of Jesse and a branch shall bear, uh, sh- uh, from his root shall bear fruit. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. In that day the root or the branch of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. A couple of months ago in our Christmas series, who was that shoot of Jesse? Who was that branch that was arising out of the stump of Jesse? The line of David who would rule over the people. His name was Jesus Christ. As as Paul explained how the gospel had been given to the Jews and to the Gentiles. How God was bringing people together. How he was bringing fruit off of a branch. He drew upon that same imagery in Romans chapter 15 and verse 12. The root or the branch of Jesse will come, he writes. Even he who rises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Back to Zechariah chapter 6 and verse number 13. It is he, this branch, this one named branch who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and he will sit and rule on his throne and he will be high priest on the throne and there will be harmony between the two. What might be the explanation of that? Go on a journey through the New Testament with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are speaking to God's people? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, down to verse 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the household of faith. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, listen to this phrase, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen to the witness of the Hebrew writer about the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 down to verse 6. For every high priest chosen from men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He then writes, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of his people. And no one, he says, takes this honor for himself but only when he is called by God just as Aaron was. In simple terms, the Hebrew writer says, we, uh, and those in the Jewish faith, we have seen the high priest. He functions on our behalf. He makes intercession for us before God. He's appointed to that task by God himself, but he understands our weakness, and therefore he's gracious with those of us who fail because even he has to make a sacrifice on his own behalf before he makes a sacrifice for us. But then the Hebrew writer says there is one who is greater So also, he writes, verse 5 and 6, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but listen to this, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever and after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the writer's argument is that that old system has gone away because we now have a new and greater high priest and his name is Jesus Christ who was appointed by God the Father at his baptism to serve as our high priest and he will reign forever as high priest. Chapter 6 and verse 20. Had Jesus Christ having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 8 verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is uh, also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. In other words, consumed in the Hebrew writer's theology is the idea that Jesus Christ serves you and I as our great high priest making intercession on our behalf. But, In the New Testament, Jesus is given other roles as well. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the story of Jesus begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The son of David. Who were the sons of David? They were the kings of Judah. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that Jesus will be great And he will be called the son of the most high. Listen to this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never ever end. What's the point? The point is that the New Testament says that the temple has gone away. That you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are the temple that is being built up. 
And we are led there, we are instructed there, we are overseen there by one named Jesus Christ who serves as both the high priest in the book of Hebrews and as the ruler and reigner, sovereign king in the gospels. There's the connection that is being made between Zechariah's prophecy where he sees God sending the branch, the root of Jesse, to reign over his people with both high priestly robes and a royal crown building his temple. Zechariah saw the building of you and I. He saw the gospel being unfolded. He saw you and I in 2023 faithing in Jesus Christ. You don't believe me? Well, let me let Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16 be the final word on the matter. The apostle John is telling us about the end of all things, the fulfillment of time, when all things will be perfected. And there he receives a direct message from God. Verse 16, I, Jesus, Jesus is speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Listen to this. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bride, and the morning star. Zechariah saw the building of a temple, but it was not the building of the temple they thought. Zechariah saw the building of the New Testament temple, and the New Testament says, we are that temple. He saw the joining of the office of priest and king into one single union, which Jesus Christ is described as being both priest and king over us. Zechariah said that the name who would wear that crown of the king and wear the robes of the priest was branch. Jesus told the revelation writer, I am the branch of David. I am the root of Jesse. In the simplest terms possible, God was sending a message to Zechariah for his people. They had been defeated and felt abandoned in chapter 1. God said, I will protect you. I will, I, you will have my presence. As a part of their defeat, they had been destroyed and they had been outnumbered in chapter 2. God said, I'll prosper you. Their defeat had come about as the judgment of God upon their sin and their unrighteousness in chapter 3. God said, I'll purify you. In chapter 4, they were told to rebuild the temple and the people thought the work was too great for them. God said, I'll empower you. In chapter 5, the stain of their sin and time in Babylon was still on them. God said, I'll purge you. In chapter 6, God then describes the fulfillment of all these things. The how and when all things will be made new. And he describes the coming of the perfect. When every injustice is made right, when every wrong is corrected, and the world itself is judged. In short, he described the end of all things. And the culmination of the end of all things came in a person. One who was both priest and king. One who wore the crown of authority and the robes of righteousness. One who would rule, reign, and make sacrifice. And for that, Zechariah was shown the gospel he was shown Jesus Christ. That leads me to an invitation and application this morning. We live, beloved, today in a world not altogether different than the world that Zechariah lived in. We live in a world of injustice. There are a great many wrongs that are committed in our vision, in our sight, on a regular basis. Don't believe me? Just simply turn on a news channel and you'll see it for yourself. We live in a world that is filled with corruption today where unrighteousness seems to have the upper hand at all times and in all seasons. And if we are like the people of Zechariah's day, we wonder, when will God finally put an end to all of this? 
Have you asked yourself that question over the last few years? When will too much be too much? When will the moment come when God says, I've had enough? When will the chariots of war descend from his presence and be scattered across the four corners of the earth, running at breakneck speed to administer his justice, to right every wrong, to, to correct every injustice? We wonder today, how will God bring an end to this world? How will God bring an end to all things? It's the same question that's on Zechariah's mind. How is God going to build his kingdom? How is he going to perfect it? How is he going to bring an end to all of these things? And the message then that God delivered to Zechariah is of paramount importance not only to him, but it's in paramount importance to us. His message to Zechariah was that God was already about the business of building his temple. That he'd been about that business from eternity past, from all the way back before time itself. Is he was about the business of building his temple. Because his temple was more than just a site. It was more than just a complex building. It was a people. In the present, that meant that God was going to equip the people of Zechariah's day for the work of physically rebuilding their temple. But it had a future fulfillment in it. As the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to show us, as, as the temple that God is building you and I, we are his temple, his people, there's a future fulfillment in all of these things that Zechariah sees. His message was that God was sending one who would rule and reign over his people and make sacrifice on their behalf. In other words, what God promised to Zechariah was he was sending his son, Jesus Christ who was anointed king at his birth. Don't we sing that Christmas song? Who was anointed priest at his baptism and who told the Revelation writer that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that he was the shooter, the branch of David that bore fruit. And beloved, you and I are that fruit today. And so that message is important in this added that we live in a world of corruption, that we live in a world of injustice, where a great many wrongs have been committed and we wonder when it will all come to its end. We wonder today, as God's people, where our help comes from. When will God step in and write these things? Well, beloved, Zechariah's answer to the people and our answer today is, our help comes from the Lord. The solution for the great pressing issues of our day is not political parties or positions of authority. Our help is in Christ. The way you combat Racism is in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. The way you combat substance abuse is in the gospel, it's in Jesus Christ. The way you combat misinformation is in the gospel, the truth that is in Jesus Christ. The way you combat all of the corruption, all of the evilness, all of the vileness of the world around us is not in self-help, it is in Jesus Christ. Our only hope as mankind is Jesus Christ. You should have agreed with me on that. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ this morning. That's it. No political party, no, no political person is going to step in and right the wrongs and the injustice of the world and make corrupt somehow incorruptible. Our help is in Jesus Christ, just as it was for Zechariah. Second, it's also important, it's paramount to us because it's a reminder, beloved, that not only is our help in the Christ who has come, who's died our death on the cross of Calvary and been risen together anew, 
who's risen to show that he had defeated the power of the grave and death and hell on its, in its wake. But it is also a reminder that that same Jesus is coming back again. <laughs> Jesus is coming back again. That is the day Zechariah is seen. He has seen a day when every wrong is made right, when justice runs down the mountains, when God's emissaries of war will cover the corners of the earth in pursuit of his holiness, in pursuit of his justice. Jesus Christ is coming back. I don't know whether it'll be the end of this message. I don't know if it'll be tomorrow. I don't know if he'll tarry another thousand years, but he's coming back, beloved. And the church has long looked for that day. We look to it with great expectation because we long to see his return. We know that that means the end of all things is at hand. The end of this sinful body is gone. I'll reach a glorified estate. But it's also a very fearful hour. It's a fearful hour for those who have never expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Because, beloved, when his emissaries of judgment proceed from his presence to cover the corners of the earth, judgment will be swift. Jesus describes it as having been cast into a lake of fire from which there is never an escape. And so his message here to Zechariah is paramount to us today because it reminds us that Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, there'll be no second chances. That his judgment and justice will be final. And to those who have not trusted in him, the reward for their lives that they'll pay for all of eternity is the suffering of hell. It's not a popular message. It's not an exciting message. It's not one that we want to even oftentimes think about. And yet, dutifully, as we proclaim God's truth and his word, we must proclaim it. So I proclaim it to you on this day, and I ask you a simple question. Have you trusted in him? Are you prepared for the day that Zechariah saw when priest and king in Jesus Christ returns to the earth with his emissaries of judgment and they spread across at breakneck speed and all the peoples of the earth are gathered before the throne? Are you prepared for that moment? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Zechariah didn't just see the end of his day. He saw the end of all days. He saw the coming of Christ. Are you prepared for that event? Stand with me reverently and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you give to us in this moment to be reminded of your truth, to be reminded of the reality.